0: Often in the West, people ask monks how to practice Buddhism. And teachers like Lumpur Cha would remind us that the Buddha taught the Dhamma and the Vinaya. The word Buddhism didn't exist in the time of the Buddha. the Dhamma, as we know, we, we chant the, we recollect the qualities of the Dhamma, that which is apparent here and now, encouraging investigation, timeless, leading inwards. to to be experienced individually by the wise. The Vinaya is the discipline, the training rules and practices. To help us understand the Dhamma, we have techniques of meditation and Contemplation as well, the samatha, meditation techniques (coughs) for calming the mind. Vipassana, techniques developing insight through investigating the true nature of phenomena. When we come to practice, we make a lot out of technique, make a lot out of the rules and the training rules, training regulations of a monastery. This is all the basic information we acquire when we become a monk. Methods of meditation, rules of training, appropriate ways of behavior and so on. We spend a lot of time in our early years reviewing and remembering rules and applying techniques. And often we make a lot out of that in our mind. Trying to get the technique of meditation just right or the right techni- technique technique f- for me, for my character. Trying to learn the rules and apply them often with a a great sincerity, we try to apply the rules, use them well and apply them fully, trying to learn all the Vinaya rules, keep them very well. All of this is a necessary part of Buddhist practice, following the path of the Buddha, practicing Dhamma, practicing Vinaya. Well, there's also a certain aspect of the practice which we can't put down on paper and we can't predict, can't always talk about either, it's the aspect of basic training in what you might call samadhiti or right view, the wisdom aspect of our practice. Part of that is just understanding how to apply the practice in different situations. Like we learn the Vinaya through discussion and reading, recitation of the rules, and repeated practice in the monastery. And the monastery is quite a protected environment. We have fellow bhikkhus who also keep the rules and remind us. We have an atmosphere that's conducive. The laity who come regularly, they get trained in the Vinaya, so they have more understanding of how it's applied, how it's practised. Of course, if you leave the monastery to travel, go wandering, visit other monasteries, visit home and so on, (coughs) we encounter new groups of people, people who don't know the Vinaya, new situations that test our own understanding of Vinaya, how to apply it in unusual circumstances. Same goes for the practice of meditation. It's one thing to practice meditation techniques in the quietness of the monastery, in this hall or in our kuti sitting, walking meditation, sitting meditation before our meal, meditating in silence as we eat, walking meditation in our day, sitting meditation, and so on. It's a protected, suitable environment. And when we leave the monastery and travel, how well do we keep up? our meditation practice, the quality of mindfulness, the quality of wise reflection. How well do we maintain our wisdom, our samaditi, if we're in different situations? And this is part of the practice, very important part because often it's the different situations we're in that will provoke the arising of kilesa. That will test us or challenge us to see what kind of a foundation of practice we have developed while we're in the monastery, particularly during a range retreat or a longer period of practice. You get tested to see how much of that actually stayed with you. If you're traveling, you don't necessarily have the books close at hand. So how well can you compose your mind, maintain mindfulness in different situations? How well can you remember the Vinaya training, the rules, the practices? <coughs> so Lumpur chaim encouraged the use of wise reflection and contemplation all the time as a support to our practice. Even if you know the detailed instructions of different meditation techniques and you practice them, when you come out of your sitting meditation or your walking meditation, how well do you look after your mind? And it's the practice of contemplation, wise reflection that will play a big part in that. Or in different unexpected situations where you're confronted with different people, different standards of behaviour, different cultural beliefs. How well do you maintain your own practice when we visit home or visit new places? A lot of this depends on having an established wisdom in our minds, a way of reflecting on our experience, a framework for reflection. It's based on what we've practiced so far, what we've learned of Dhamma and Vinaya, but we have to be able to apply it over and over again in different situations. The ability to Compose ourselves and reflect on what's going on in our minds, what we're doing, how we're relating to the world around us. That's particularly important in unfamiliar or new situations. How well we do that is basically how much wisdom we're carrying around with us and the ability to use wisdom by training in contemplation having the wisdom to stop and reflect on things take a moment to consider issues that arise situations we're in and see how we apply our training in Dhamma Vinaya to them and one teaching that I was given before coming to Australia was the one about the Buddha gave to some of those early Arahants who left to spread the teachings of the Buddha going into different directions. He's asking one, how how will you practice when you go into a new area where they don't know how to respect monks, they don't know the, the Buddha, the word of the Buddha different culture, different beliefs. How will you practice in that place? What if they don't show you any respect? They're rude or cold or aggressive. What will you do? And the monk answers, well, I'll reflect. If they just show me the cold shoulder or Suspicion is better than them just being verbally aggressive or throwing some abuse in my direction. The Buddha says, well, what what if they do verbally abuse you, scold you, criticize you for being different because of their prejudice or whatever? How will you deal with that? The monk answers, well, I'll reflect a few words Scolding, a, f- a scolding with a few words is better than them throwing rocks or hitting me with sticks. The Buddha goes on, well, what if they hit you with sticks or throw rocks at you? The monk says, well, I'll reflect better than them killing me. And what if they try to kill you? Well, I'll reflect, I've been dragging this heavy body around, this unclean body around for a long time now, it's time to let go of it. So that m- monk passed the, the test. He had enough wisdom to be ready for every situation. The Buddha was testing him out. He was an arahant, so he had no more attachment, no more delusion, no more bias in his mind. We have to follow in the example of the Buddha and the Arahants and our teachers. They're all able to apply the Dhamma and the Vinaya in a multitude of situations. They learn how to think Dhamma, Vinaya. See the Dhamma in a situation, see the Vinaya in a situation. Which means there's a certain Adaptability and flexibility of mind we have to be sometimes have to be creative we have to be able to look at things different angles before we can understand what to do in a situation but we we're not kind of lost and struggling to have any system of thinking in those situations, we have our training. We know the rules, the practices. We understand the Dhamma, we've learned to meditate. It's not that we have no framework to fall back on. It's just learning how to apply that so that our practice can continue in different situations. How can we meditate or maintain the meditative state of mind, the meditative attitude, in different situations when we're traveling when we're tired when we're confronted with unknown people unknown situations when we're busy and so on there's plenty of challenges this is what we have to learn and you see all the different ajans when they talk about what we say going on tudong wandering alone or in small groups going to places where they've never been to before in the forest or on the edges built up areas encountering people who often didn't know about Vinaya didn't know about how monks practice or what they really do what they were they had to apply their training to those situations Buddha said we have to be humble, patient when we go into a non-Buddhist society. Can't expect them to know how to treat us as monks, how to relate to us skillfully, different from the people in a, who come and support us in the monastery. Most people we meet don't know the rules, don't know how we live, they don't know that we don't hold money They don't know that we can't ask for things without receiving an invitation, a pawarana first. In those situations, we often have to just be very, very patient and humble. Maybe there's something that we need and it's within our physical reach and maybe it would just take a a small comment and we could get, get it, but we're not allowed to. I remember once when I was a young man, there was one family in Bangkok that offered to look after me when my parents came. I went to stay in Wat Bowon, the Sangharaja's monastery, and they helped me to go and pick up my parents for the airport. Took me around a bit, and they provided the food, but they didn't know I was a vegetarian. Every day they'd bring us bring me the best meat dishes you could get, very nice food, but I hardly ate any of it. My family were new in Thailand, so I didn't want to bother them for food, to ask them for food. So I had some very simple meals, even though the people were well-off enough to provide good quality food. I ended up eating a lot of rice, and bananas in the middle of Bangkok. I remember that family, I knew them, I still know them today, but I knew them for six six years. It was six years before they realised or someone told them that I was a vegetarian. I remember them being told and their jaws dropping because it suddenly dawned on them all those times they'd offered food and I didn't... um, wasn't going to be able to have eaten it, but they didn't realize. Sometimes we learn to put the the Dhamma and the Vinaya first for ahead of our own personal comfort, convenience, because we're in training and it might seem To a lay person, strange or unnecessary. But if you're training your mind to make it firm in the Dhamma, in the Vinaya, then sometimes it's necessary to do that. Sometimes it's necessary to cut off our own defilements. I wish to get things, or I wish to socialize, or I wish to do this, do that. Internally, we might be training ourselves, using these situations to train. But on the outside, other people, they don't realize what we're doing. This is part of what we call practicing in seclusion. (coughs) Even though sometimes we're surrounded by other people. But we're practicing and training ourselves on our own. And they may not quite realize what's going on even though they're kind, good people, but they don't know the actual details of our practice or what we might be going through in our mind. So they're not able to necessarily empathize or understand exactly what we're doing. So it can seem a bit lonely. But if you have awareness that you're training in a tradition that comes from the Buddha, from the Arya Sangha and our teachers, start to feel a bit better, feel warmer. You're not alone because you're actually supported by a huge tradition going back thousands of years. But in the moment we might feel lonely, feel a little bit fed up, frustrated. That's something we have to be patient with and remind ourselves what we're doing and why. When I was a young monk, it's about six, seven rains. I'd been upatarki and Chah for a long time, uh, spending many months at Wapupong. I was a bit tired, and also being living in a big community of monks, working quite hard. So I had the idea to go off for the rains to find somewhere quiet to meditate. Somebody had told Ajahn Anan about a piece of forest in southern Thailand, and it just so happened to be an event at a new monastery in southern Thailand where many great Ajahn's went to. A ceremony to offer some land, so he joined that, and then we went off to see this bit of forest jungle in uh, Chumphon province. I decided to spend the rains there. Nobody forced me to, but I'd spend the rains there with Ajahn Chu, another disciple of Ajahn Ananda, who also wanted to, a quiet place to practice. It was my first time in southern Thailand for any length of time. I'd been to visit Ajahn Buddhadasa, which was, his monastery wasn't far away before, but only for a few days. And the culture and the lifestyle of southern Thailand is quite a lot of difference between central or northeast Thailand. So it took a lot of adjusting, getting to, mm. used to the people's accent, the way they spoke, their food, and their cultural practices and beliefs. Even though we're obviously in, coming in contact with Buddhists the way they practiced Buddhism was a little bit different from what we were used to. The way they chanted, some of the ceremonies, what they wanted monks to do, what they thought of monks, was different. So quickly I had to learn, when you're in a new place like that, you can't expect them all to practice like the regular lay people who come to a forest monastery, in northeast Thailand or even in Central Thailand. And they came to see us. We were just staying in a couple of little huts in quite deep jungle. There was no electricity, no roads. It's miles from anywhere. A former communist hideout. There's still a lot of wild animals around, elephants. There was gibbons every morning as we went bar. We have the gibbons swinging around in the trees over us. And the people didn't know much about us at all. They all at first got annoyed because we didn't accept money. because they said, we want to make merit. Please accept this money. And we said, no, we can't. And we had no lay supporter with us. So some people got very frustrated Uh, even said, what kind of monks are you? You don't accept money. <laughs> so, you know, on our own, we would laugh about it. We think, yeah, well, what kind of monks are we? We don't expect, accept money. Well, we're, we're trying to keep the proper Vinaya. But it's understandable people had, down there had only met monks who did accept money. And they wanted to make merit. They have a very strong belief in making merit for their dead relatives. So it was as if we weren't making it convenient for them. We were being difficult. So It's understandable why they thought that. Over the course of the Vasa, they gradually they got to the point where they appointed a reputable person in the village to look after funds so then they could make donations. That only happened after many weeks and even months of them not understanding how to practice with us, with the aspect of offering funds. Eventually something was sorted out and they started to see the benefit of it because they realized we were actually not following greed or not giving the chance for greed to arise by not taking money, not handling money, receiving money. There's just one small aspect of our practice that brought up endless questions and discussion and all kinds of other things, things like you mm-hmm. not taking food unless it's put into your hands or into your bowl. People place the food next to us in the southern Thailand they all used to carry bintos, these little metal containers with four or five compartments that put different dishes, curries, sweet, rice in. Sometimes people would just place it down and walk away. <laughs> they'd bow and walk away before you'd had a chance to receive it. So you're always having to teach people to offer the food. And each person offered one binto with about five levels. So they'd come, they'd, a lot of them would walk, a few kilometers to get to where we were staying to make an offering and most days it was a very small number of people would come but on a public holiday or a festival day you could get a very large number everyone bought one binto so that's five different trays you take a spoonful of each Uh, so you get maybe 10 people that's already 50 different trays of food and if you they're all sitting there watching you if you don't take feel a bit embarrassed, feel sorry for them. In Southern Thailand, they have a, the, one of the biggest festivals of the year is sat is when they make merit for the dead. They say the gates of heaven and hell are open. On that day, we had about 300 people come, which for a, a little shack in the middle of the jungle was uh, overwhelming, and each one of them bought a bintō with them, so three hundred times five was fifteen hundred little plates and they all wanted us to take a spoonful from each dish. So the food offering took about an hour, making sure it was done according to the Vinaya. But we were willing to do it, we knew it was only a one day thing that they all came and they appreciated our efforts to both take their food, but also to train them in the Vinaya. So by the end of the Vasa, you know, we had a number of people who did understand the rules. And they could tell their friends. They knew about offering food. They knew about, we couldn't accept money. They knew all kinds of rules about, we couldn't sit talking to women alone and so on. Gradually, from an early period of, they were suspicious, didn't like the style, the Vinaya style and so on. Gradually they started to understand the meaning, the more we explained. And so they warmed to it over time and saw the value of it. And they saw the value of how it supports meditation practice, keeps the monks separate from many worldly things, keeps the monks mindful alert all the time because they have to keep their rules. There's a good learning experience, you might call it work experience, or a tudong bhikkhu, where you learn on the job how to deal with different situations as they arise, how to keep the vinaya, how to keep meditation going, that's just one example when we first arrived there there was one man who was very very angry because he had stolen some of the monastery that, uh, some of the land that had been set aside to build a monastery in the jungle because it was just jungle he had cleared it and planted trees crops <coughs> and he thought our arrival would herald the taking back of his land from him and he was reputed to be a murderer on the run and he definitely had a gun because we saw him carrying his rifle around a lot and he had a very uh, bad reputation in that area so when we arrived he got very angry, made a few comments but we had no quarrel with him and we weren't thinking of taking anybody's land or anything. We're just there to practice the Dhamma. We just kept saying that We're here to practice Dhamma Vinaya, to meditate. But his first suspicions, he he didn't put them aside because we didn't leave. He thought we'd leave after a few days. So he actually made a threat, a direct threat, saying something about what might happen to us if we don't leave or if we take his land from him, what would our fate would be, which incensed all the other villages around. So we ended up with a border police patrol visiting us every day for a few weeks, bringing all their heavy weaponry and hanging around the sala. Perhaps it was a chance for them to have a little bit of a day off. They could chat with the monks and have a cigarette and some free food just to make sure that nothing untoward happened. In the end we just practice the Dhamma, practice metta, patience, loving kindness. And this man really couldn't find fault with us. We weren't threatening him or doing anything to harm him. We didn't bother him in any way. We just spread metta and were polite and friendly to everybody. So after a while all the disruption settled down, there's no need to have any guards, the villagers were all back to being happy and peaceful, this guy just went about his business. You see very clearly in those situations how just keep, to keep reflecting on the Dhamma, practicing patience, humility, metta, gradually wins people over, they don't, They can't hold on to a lot of grudge or revenge seeking if you're not doing anything to them. If you're willing just to put up with their own suffering, their own problems for a while, then they start to change. He probably didn't become a very strong follower of the monastery, but at least he just let us be. and didn't cause us any trouble. This is how we practice, we learn to apply the Dhamma and Vinaya in different situations that we find ourselves in, with people who don't understand the Dhamma, it could be relatives, friends, or just people we encounter on our travels. We have no choice really but to be patient, humble, be willing sometimes to explain to people who don't know. And often they are people who want to know, so if you invest a little bit of time explaining, not only do you remind yourself what your rules are, what your practices are, you help them to understand what you're doing better. It's that willingness to apply the Dhamma and to uh, use wisdom in different situations. You can't always go into a new situation with fixed perceptions, fixed ideas of how you should be, how other people should be. And we reflect every day, and this body, this mind, these five kandhas are not self. There's no one here. Just a collection of elements, physical elements, and nama dhamma, mental activity feelings, thoughts, memories, arising and passing away. And we reflect on that. We have the techniques of vipassana meditation. But then in practice, how do you apply it? Well, you contemplate. So you encounter someone who's a little bit suspicious of you or aggressive. Well, contemplate their candors are like that. Their lack of information, lack of knowledge about what you are, who you are, what you do. It makes them react in that way. But this is the just the, the candors at work. And their perceptions, their thoughts, their feelings are like that. If you use the power of metta and patience and wisdom in that situation, well, that has a good effect on your mind and it can have a good effect on their mind over time. So their candors quieten down. We can reflect on our own dhamma, our own body, our own f- physical form. It's just a collection of four elements, 32 parts. The kind of reflections, meditations we've done, we apply that as we're walking or traveling, going here, going there. It's just a sel- collection of four elements moving along the road, but there's no real person or being there. We receive praise from some people, a lot of faith or think we're doing a very good thing. That's good, but it arises and it passes away. We receive criticism or abuse from people who don't understand. Again, just arises, passes away. And there's the same four elements, 32 parts, just moving along the road or going wherever it's going. It doesn't have to be a sense of a being, a person, a self, me or them. It's just five candas, four elements, five candas. One set over here, one set over there, arising, ceasing. We reflect like this, we can even experience a sense of emptiness and a sense of release of the mind from various attachments in a certain situation just let go from any of any sense of self, conceit, or reactions in different situations. We just let go. Even if we're very tired, so you travel and you have to talk to people and do things, you have to think and get involved with the world, and maybe find it very tiring. We just reflect. It's just feelings of tiredness. There's a cause for it if you've been. Ex- spending energy, then physically, mentally we get tired. It's just the way it is, that's the way the candors are, they change their their nature as we use them, well we get different feelings, I maybe mean, we have pleasant feelings and then we get tired and we have unpleasant feelings arising, it's just the way it is. As we work or do more physical labor, physically intensive things, we expend energy. That makes the kandas tired. Feelings, dukkha, weight in our eyes. We don't have to let it make the mind get caught into negative reactions of aversion. We just know it. Oh, it's like this. You work a lot. Physically, you feel like this. Maybe it, afterwards you have to rest more. It's just the way it is. You don't have to let the mind go into a lot of negativity or complaining or form views about work or doing things or traveling, what you like, what you don't like. These are all the, what we call the akati, the the biases of mind, the preferences based on greed, anger, delusion or fear. Maybe we have a fear of even doing good, sometimes we have a fear of meditation. Oh, if I meditate, I'm just going to get tired or painful legs. Still a form of fear, it might be a very mild fear. It can be, a fo- if a form of fear arise about meditation or about doing some job that maybe we're we supposed, supposed to do or could do, we're afraid, oh, oh, it'll make me tired or it'll distract me or get me involved in the world too much. We can have endless opinions and views about things, but follow it back. Mm -hmm. Reflect a bit in that situation. Reflect back Mm -hmm. and look at some of the underlying prejudices that may be stimulating that reaction. A love of comfort, a love of getting things my own way, doing things my own way according to my own habits, a dislike of having to do things other people's way, what other people tell me or what other people expect. Dislike of expending effort, energy sometimes. we are just afraid of getting physically tired. Even though it might be doing something good, we don't want it. Sometimes we're afraid of meditation. We think it would be troublesome for us to have to sit still or walk. Meditation, you know, when it's a little bit cold, a little bit drizzly or windy, we say, oh, I can't do walking meditation, the weather's not right. Maybe we just limit ourselves and shut down opportunities to rise over our biases in our mind, just because of a little bit of fear, a little bit of aversion. In these different situations then, not just when we're, say, at our kuti, sitting or walking or studying as we wish, but in situations where we don't have so much control, be adaptable, be flexible to use mindfulness and wisdom just to see kilesas arising in those situations. Because often you can let go of kilesa in the more unpredictable and controlled situations that we face. when everything is under our control, often the Kalesas go to sleep and our mindfulness and wisdom goes to sleep, so we just don't see very much happening, we don't know very much. So often when we confront the more challenging situations, that's when kilesa comes up, that's when we can actually let go of it, see the trouble it causes us and just give up, let go and see through kilesa, see it as an Ichaduka dukkha anatta, it's empty, empty yourself. So in this period we have more work, more travel, more activities perhaps than in the inside the range retreat, but just see it as an opportunity to test your practice. Test your practice of Dhamma, test your practice of Vinaya, test your commitment to the practice and see things as a challenge that can maybe help you grow in the practice rather than as some kind of insurmountable obstacle or some problem. Just try and incorporate everything into the practice and make it part of the practice. That way you'll probably find your practice becomes a little, Mm -hmm. goes a bit deeper and becomes stronger. You get a better foundation of what and understanding of what Dhamma Vinaya is and how to apply it in daily life in different situations. And then it can be something that you can really rely on. It becomes a real refuge for you rather than something we're just learning from the books or practising in a very controlled situation. Mm-hmm. It becomes something that really underlies our whole being, the way our mind is functioning. Wherever we are, wherever we go, we're using Dhamma Vinaya all the time. We're inclining towards Dhamma Vinaya all the time. It's no longer something separate from us, something just for the books, or for monasteries, or for the Buddha two two and a half thousand years ago. It's something that's a living practice that we're using day by day to help ourselves free the mind from the causes of suffering. So I'll leave you with these words of reflection tonight.